Good morning. The reading this morning is 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 23 to chapter 11, verse 13. Verse 23, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar, as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Kew at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen." Thank you, George. 
Uh, well, here's a little story about the king of rock and roll. Um, yes, I am one of those people that's gotten interested in Elvis again after watching the Baz Luhrmann film. Um, Elvis, right? He was this up-and-comer from Memphis when Sun Records put out his first single. And uh, I think it's fair to say that he caused a stir. This kind of weird, handsome guy with his risque dance moves, almost like a man possessed. Uh, he brought the sounds of African-American music out from the underground in an era really charged with racial tension. Elvis started out looking to push the boundaries, to find love, to express himself, and to care for his family. But of course, uh, he ends up a shadow of all that, drug-sick and paranoid, having pushed all those who loved him away, still brilliant, but chained to a Las Vegas hotel, lonely and commercialized. The movie explores the question, how did someone so talented, so unique, end up in such a sad place? I don't know about you, but I find stories like that are quite fascinating for regular plebs like us, because they give us this fantasy of, you know, what would it be like to have and do whatever you want. But at the same time, they let us see from a safe distance what happens when life crashes and burns. The sad fate of the king of rock and roll leaves us asking, was it worth it? When it's all over, what kind of legacy do I want to leave? I mean, sure, Elvis's name is known across the world even decades after his untimely death. He left an awesome legacy in the arts. But I wonder if he was happy with the legacy that he was leaving. Would the massive inheritance that he left his daughter outweigh his absence as a father? No one embodies these sober and complex questions better than Solomon, Israel's greatest king, who was a bit of a rock star himself. The passage that we just heard leaves us thinking, what happened? Not only did he have worldwide fame and glamour, he had a special relationship with the God of all creation. Last week we heard that massive high point where Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem a place where the infinite, perfect God would make himself available to finite and imperfect people. Solomon saw the cloud of God's presence fill the temple with his own eyes. So what happened to Solomon? The first readers of 1 Kings were living in the aftermath of what happens in our passage today. No more temple, no more home in Jerusalem. And you can imagine them sitting in a Babylonian pub somewhere, shaking their heads and asking, what happened to our glory days? Will they ever come again? Or is life just one big tragedy with some high points and a sad ending? We need answers to those questions today too. Hearing what happened to the king who had it all makes you wonder, what if all the good things of life he had plenty of those. What if they're not all they're cracked up to be? What if in the frantic pace of my life, 
I'm climbing up a ladder that leads to nowhere. Just like those first readers, those who follow Jesus today are looking forward to the coming of God's kingdom again on earth as it is in heaven. Unlike those first exiles, we know for sure that it's coming when King Jesus returns to put things right. But as you read about Solomon, if you're anything like me, you can't help but think of Christian leaders who have crashed and burned in terrible ways. You might think of people in your life who seemed so all in for Jesus and yet have now walked away. Or you might be looking back on glory days in your own faith and thinking, what happened? We need to know what happened so that we don't become shadows of our former selves. So point one in your outlines, the danger of success. Everything is going so well in God's kingdom where we pick up in verse 23 of chapter 10. Let me read it again. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. In fact, at the start of chapter 10, the queen of Sheba traveled all the way just to meet Solomon. When she heard him speak and saw the glory of the temple, this non-Jewish person found herself giving praise to the God of Israel. And for that moment at least, God's special people Israel are doing exactly what they're meant to be. When God chose Abraham way back when, he made that promise that set this whole story into motion. I will make you into a great nation and I'll bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Here in 1 Kings 10, it's happening. Everything's going so well. But success can be dangerous, can't it? And so the alarm bells start ringing in verse 26. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. What's wrong with having well-stocked defenses? Well, it seems fine until we take a step back and look at this story in the context of the big story of God setting aside a people for himself. God gave this warning way back in Deuteronomy 17 when Abraham's children were about to enter the promised land. He said, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. Or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you're not to go back that way again. It's uncanny, isn't it? God knows the human heart very well. So when we find Solomon sending people to Egypt to import more horses in verse 28, our hearts are meant to sink. Because it becomes clear that Solomon has moved from enjoying the blessings of God to taking what he wants. God's kingdom has become his kingdom. What happened? 
Well, let me take you to another story that started well but ended in disaster, just to give us a window in. The Titanic set sail for her maiden voyage back in 1912, the largest ship afloat in her day. Earlier that year, the captain, Edward Smith, declared that he could not imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder and sink. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. Of course, we know how the story ends. Despite receiving six warnings of icebergs, the Titanic didn't slow down. From what I understand, the the kind of protocol was to prioritize making the arrival time. So just five days into that voyage, the Titanic sank, taking over 1,500 lives with her. I'm sure there's more to the story than that, but That ship's name will forever remind us that pride comes before a fall. God knows that about us. So he warned his people in Deuteronomy. When you get a great king, be careful. God knows that it's often when things are going great that instead of thanking him, we're prone to think, wow, I'm nailing it. I'm king of the world. And yes, that is a Titanic quote. Thank you very much. Uh, But did you know who said pride comes before a fall? I have to confess, I did a quick Google search. But who said it? It was Solomon. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Isn't that devastating? None of us are immune. As we watch Solomon swell with pride and start to sink, it's only right to ask ourselves, what are the successes that would lead you astray? I'm not talking about things that are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but what good gifts from God might be dangerous for you? That thing other than Jesus that you feel deep down might complete you. Is it finding the perfect partner? Or having the dynasty of kids and grandkids to focus your affections on? Is it finally putting the deposit down on a house? Is it having your talent in sport or music or your profession discovered? What would you pour your whole heart and soul into if you could? And forget about the things of the kingdom. I can't answer that question for you, so I'll just ask, what are the successes that would lead you astray? For Solomon, the greatness was starting to go to his head, and the Egyptian horses are just the tip of the iceberg, because deep down, it's a heart thing. Point two, the disaster of a divided heart. Let's read again from the start of chapter 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. Now, we've just been talking about God's plan to bless people from every nation. So this is not about exclusion based on racial superiority. Rather, it's an issue of divided passions. God warned Israel time and again not to marry those from surrounding nations because, verse 2, they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. And that's exactly what Solomon did. 
he clung to his many wives in love. The king of peace threw it all away for himself and for his nation in the name of love. And again, Deuteronomy 17 is ringing in our ears. Here's the next warning it gave to the king. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. This is a tragic moment in the history of God's people. Solomon was introduced in chapter 3 as a king who loved God. Now, he loves women. 700 wives and 300 concubines, to be precise. Uh, It's kind of ridiculous to imagine how those relationships might have worked. But, like the celebrities of our day, the king shows us the logical conclusion of what happens when the human heart gets free reign and we can do whatever we want. As a side note, although the Old Testament does not explicitly condemn polygamy, it clearly doesn't work out well. And by the time we get to the New Testament, it's clear that marriage between one man and one woman is the way God designed us to express our romantic affections. Solomon's greatest moment came when he asked God for a listening heart to do justice in the kingdom. Now his heart is turned towards a much different purpose. He built the temple. Now, verse 7, he builds a high place for Molech of the Ammonites. Molech was one of the gods people feared in the ancient Near East, and detestable is right. People sacrificed their children to Molech. And Solomon bought into that. From what we know about Solomon, he didn't set out to walk away from God, but one decision after the next, led by his passionate love, each compromise got a little bit easier. As one Christian thinker put it, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. And now we can look back and see how those, you know, those little weaknesses that we saw in Solomon, mixed with popularity, fueled by passion, in his old age with a great track record behind him, he let it happen. And he became a shadow of his former self. Why? Verse 8. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. He did it to please the ones he loved. And who hasn't ever gone against their better judgment for the sake of those we care about? In case we're sitting back thinking, well, how could he throw his faith away? Notice that Solomon didn't think that's what he was doing. No, the issue in verse 4 is that his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. It's not so much that he crashed and burned in his faith, it's that he tried to have it all. Which is exactly why it went so badly. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, which Jesus later said was the key to all the Old Testament, says this, 
love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That is the way to peace. Because what could be more right and harmonious than trusting the one who gave you life with your whole life? Solomon's name means peace. It comes from that Hebrew word for peace and completeness, shalom. His rule brought shalom to a point. But when Solomon tried to compartmentalize his faith and was no longer completely devoted to the Lord, shalom began to fade. I'm sure we all know what it's like to try and manage a double life to some extent, to give part of your heart to this and part of your heart to that. If you know what that's like, then you'll know that it's anything but peaceful. Do you know the feeling of standing and singing on a Sunday morning and feeling like an absolute hypocrite? Because the things you're saying are so at odds with your Saturday night self. Why does the human heart have to be such a fickle thing? Like, why is it even possible to be in love with more than one person at once? The rock stars sing about it all the time. A fantasy that always leads to pain and mess. So too, it's possible to love God and be tantalized by the things that God hates. And with a clearer head, the things that I'd hate too. I think Solomon would agree with that. Why are we like that? The Anglican prayer book puts it like this. In words, we often pray together. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. That's the human condition. Not even Solomon can live up to Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. This turning point in the book of Kings is almost like Adam and Eve leaving the Garden of Eden all over again. For those first readers of Kings, wondering what happened to the glory days of Solomon, here's the answer. The king's heart went astray. The aging king who once brought justice even for the prostitutes should have left a legacy of peace. But instead, the kingdom begins to tear apart even within this chapter. He leaves behind a legacy of broken relationships, strife, and a pick-and-choose approach to God. And flashing forward to the end of two kings, we see the ripple effects of Solomon's compromise as we meet Israel's worst king, Manasseh. The thing that marked Manasseh out as the worst king is this. He sacrificed his children to Molech. Now, how on earth could God's Messiah from the line of David end up committing a travesty like that? Well, he's just taking what he learned from his forefather to its logical conclusion. Solomon confronts us with yet another aspect of our experience here, and that is we're always active in what we give our hearts to. 
Yes, his heart was led away by his wives. Perhaps he was so overcome with love that it felt like he had no choice. And yet notice verse 9. At the very same time, his heart had turned away from the Lord. Solomon was active. And we know that too, deep down. We choose whether we let our passions lead to action. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Let's hear the warning today from the aging Solomon. Our passions can be so deceptive. And although this has far-reaching implications for all of us, it would be silly of me to pass over this passage without a word to those who are thinking about who they might one day marry. Can I urge you, please don't give your heart to someone who will ask you to divide it. The single life has challenges of its own. Promising to devote yourself to a person other than Jesus is not one of them. If you're looking for someone to date and marry, let it be someone who will want nothing more for you than that you put Jesus first. That person who is perfect in every other way, except they don't follow Jesus, that exception might seem small, but it's actually about worshipping another God. Now, we thank God for our sisters and brothers who are married to someone who isn't a believer and who work hard to honour Jesus. But can I say, I have seen too many friends walk away from Jesus for the sake of romantic love. It's not what they set out to do, but they chose the gods of their partner. And I pray that it's not the end of their story. Now, I know that'll be hard to believe, especially if you're really attracted to or even in love with somebody who won't encourage you to follow God wholeheartedly. So I'm just saying it now. If you find yourself at that crossroads, remember Solomon. For those who are married already, there's another warning in Solomon's life for us. Let God's word have the final say in your marriage rather than the ups and downs of your heart. Passion is a great thing in marriage, but it's not the boss. If you find yourself drawn to somebody who isn't your spouse in attraction or even in love, if you are sad to find less passion in your marriage than there once was, that is not God's way of telling you that it's time to move on. Remember how Solomon's heart deceived him. Because this is about the heart, this passage is for all of us, no matter what your relationship status. And the challenge is this. Have we had enough challenges yet? <laughs> the challenge is this. Where are we tempted to compartmentalize Jesus, to love God and the idols of our age. I hope it's really clear as I say this, 
Christians are not people who have it all together. This is the Christian family tree we're talking about. No, those who follow Jesus are people who are acutely aware that their hearts are prone to wander and who turn to Jesus for help. So the invitation for all of us today is this. As we watch Solomon wander, pray for an undivided heart. Even Solomon didn't have it in himself to live wholeheartedly for God. It has to be up to God. Point three, God's faithfulness towards the fickle. Well, after all that, God condescends to speak to Solomon, his chosen king. And three things I think stand out in his response. First, his anger. Have a look at verse nine. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. What Solomon did was not okay. As our loving father, God is the one person who deserves to be first in our hearts. So he's right to be jealous for that. God loves Solomon too much to say that everything's fine. So just as he promised in 2 Samuel 7, he disciplines his king as a parent would. Second, his long suffering. Continuing verse 9, his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Solomon had unforgettable proof, not only of God's existence, but of his generous plan for the king. God's anger is not him just flying off the handle, he's been there for Solomon every step of the way. And Solomon still chooses to turn aside. And even that's not the end of the story for God's king. God's long-suffering shines a spotlight on our own stubbornness. If you know Jesus, you too know God's grace and generosity firsthand. The cross is the unforgettable God-turning-up moment. Why is it still so hard to put him first? Thank God for the third thing that stands out, and that's his grace. God shows kindness to the undeserving. God will tear the kingdom away from Solomon, but listen from verse 12. Nevertheless, for the sake of your father David, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe, for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. At this point, I think God has the right to say, you know what, I'm done with you. Instead, he spares Solomon from seeing the devastating outcome of his sin, and he limits the consequences. God will entrust the future of the kingdom to the tribe of Judah. That's the thread on which our hopes hang for the rest of kings. God does not deal with us as our sins deserve. Do you believe that? Perhaps you're here today not quite convinced that God is kind. Perhaps you're aware of failures in your past so big that you think you are beyond his grace. But notice the reasons God gave for his promise of mercy. That little phrase, 
for the sake of came up three times. For the sake of David, your father. For the sake of David, my servant. For the sake of Jerusalem, my chosen. In other words, God's promise of grace to Solomon and his offspring have nothing to do with what they might do next and everything to do with what God has already said and already decided in the past. God has set his heart on bringing all kinds of sinful people back under his blessing. So nothing will stop him from doing that, including our mixed performances. Those exiles sitting in Babylon, reliving their glory days, needed to look past the glamour of Solomon and see the grace of God. That's where the glory is. So what happened in the end? Well, our hopes hang by that little thread until a baby is born to a certain carpenter in David's line, almost a thousand years later, to the tribe of Judah, which is an absolute shadow of what it once was. Like Solomon, Jesus left the masses stunned by his divine wisdom. Unlike Solomon, Jesus is a king without an army, no riches, no wife, and far from accumulating concubines, if you read through the accounts of Jesus' life, you'll notice that he never exploits a woman. What Solomon needed, what we all need in the end, is a new heart. And that's exactly what Jesus came to make possible. That's the battle he fought when he humbled himself completely to the point of a cross on a dark day when Jesus, as the king of God's people, took all the pride, the sexual unfaithfulness, the idolatry, and all the anger that we deserve to receive for that, and he chose to wear it himself so we could go free. And because Jesus dealt with the heart of the issue, we're no longer slaves to our own stubbornness. He replaces our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Brothers and sisters, whatever happens, this is our only confidence. God's faithfulness to the fickle. And 1 Kings kind of leaves us wondering, how did Solomon respond? I wonder if the author leaves us hanging because we're meant to ask, well, how would I respond? I hope you found this morning a little bit unsettling. I have, as we've thought about the state of our hearts. If you've been a bit unsettled, can I say, in light of God's anger, his long-suffering and his grace, the most sensible and most freeing thing we can do is this. Cast yourself on God's mercy. Pray that prayer. We have not loved you with our whole heart. Confident that God will act for the sake of his promises. Jesus promised that he would not lose one of those entrusted into his hand. And he has spelled that promise out in his own blood. No matter how far you've strayed, 
you can ask for his help and enter into the relief of knowing, yes, I'm far from perfect, but I'm loved by the Father and he is breathing new life into this crooked heart. So a question to finish. What kind of legacy do we want to leave? My prayer for us as a church is that we might be part of a great legacy of grace. Solomon's life reminds us we can never assume grace. God personally appeared to him twice and he forgot. Let's be a church that never moves on from the wonder of God's kindness to us at the cross. Uh, Pastor Don Carson made this observation. One generation believes something, the next assumes it, and the third will forget and deny it. And I wonder if he'd been reading 1 Kings. Lord, may we never move on from your grace. Wouldn't it be amazing if in generations to come, the gospel is still going out loud and clear from this place? Hearts being laid bare in the next generation, lives being changed in the one after that, forgiveness being experienced in the one after that. That's a legacy I want to be part of. What about in our own lives? What do you want to look back on with great thankfulness in your final season? Can I say I'm thank, so thankful for the example that many of our older brothers and sisters uh, here set in this? I spoke to Kay Crawley a couple of weeks ago. I don't want to embarrass you, Kay. Um, but as a dear sister in her 90s, Kay has had a fair few health challenges in the past few weeks. I think that's safe to say, Kay. When I spoke to her just to check how she was holding up, Kay just kept talking about how kind God had been to her. And she reminded me that she prays for me and my family. She's still having a ministry of grace in her 90s. Forget fame and glory. I want to be like that when I grow up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our King Jesus. Thank you that he succeeds where Solomon and we fail. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our failures to the cross and leaving them there. We pray, Lord, that you would give us undivided hearts so that we might fear your name. Amen.